Good morning, church. So, my name is Chris, Chris Chaw, and uh, it's a true uh, blessing and privilege to uh, just just to preach the word. And uh, yes, exactly uh, right that uh, I do love Jesus, and I love the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, because it uh, it gives me the right perspective. It shows me my desperate need of a savior. And it shows me how beautiful my Savior is. Amen. Um, with that, just wanted to, uh, we're going to be uh, going through Ecclesiastes today. Um, just wanted to quickly um, uh, introduce uh, my family here. Um, my, my wife couldn't be here today. She's, um, she's helping a lady in the hospital uh, and have a baby. So um, not my baby. Just, she's helping another woman. Um, but that's my bride and best friend, Anna. And uh, together we have uh, four uh, we're great kids, Tommy, Theo, Isabel, and Sage, and uh, they definitely uh, keep us young and active at times. So um, it's a blessing to be here at Cornerstone. Uh, I'm so blessed by this church, and um, I'm sure uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, but really, uh, just blessed. Uh, been meeting with Brad and, and John uh, on Friday mornings, and uh, it's been an answer to prayer. And um, just uh, knowing Brad's heart for just not his own church. He, he loves the church, but he just loves the church at whole. And uh, it's just evident in his involvement in, in the SALT team with Church of Anchorage. And, and uh, I, I see that that mentality has, has infected the whole Cornerstone staff. I mean, uh, Pastor Shane's involved with the children's ministry here in Anchorage, like just corporately. Um, Brian is involved with the youth ministry uh, network. Uh, um, Ash is involved with the worship pastors. And I don't know, every gathering I go to, Church of Anchorage, I, I, it's always Ash leading praise, and it's just, it's just awesome to see him everywhere, and a, a real blessing. Um, and I was also privileged to take the perspectives class with, uh, I know that Scott had, uh, Scott and Justin had uh, taken that class with the Cornerstone Mission team, and, uh, you know, John Patton just uh, being involved in lives of men everywhere here, and it's just a blessing, and um, uh, just a blessing for me to see that and to be a part of that as well. But before we get into our text, this is, it's going to be a long-winded introduction here, but I, I wanted to give you a, a biblical framework, for, for, uh, at least for, um, for preaching. And I pray that you would be challenged by it. Um, some of you may have already, uh, some of you know this probably, and some of you may have, t- have taken classes or have gone to Bible college, and, and you already have this framework in place. Um, but I didn't want to assume, because I know that there, there may be a couple here in this room that don't, um, that don't read the Bible in, in this light. And the bottom line is this, is that all of us here in this room, when we read the scriptures, all of us here bring some baggage to the text, all right? I mean, there's not a single scholar in this world or theologian that is able to interpret the scriptures completely objectively. Um, but what I wanted to, I guess, present to you is, is just a framework. And I'm not here to say that I know it all or that, oh, this is, this is the perfect method and you've got to do it this way. But what I am for is context. And there's a saying that says, context is king. And we know that context, obviously, is what comes before and after a text. Um, but what I, wanna, what I want us to think about when I say context, too, is not just what comes before and after, but how does this text fit into the one story, into God's overall plan of, of, of redemption? And uh, I know that when we read the scripture in this light, it, it'll help us eliminate some harmful baggage Baggage that will perhaps cause us to distort the scriptures, which will lead us to uh, just distorted interpretation, which leads to wrongful application, right? So all of scripture, it's believed, is to fit into what's called a biblical theological framework. 
And this differs from maybe how you and I were taught. I mean, typically in Bible uh, universities and seminaries, one of the first courses you'll take is systematic theology. And, you know, it, it's topical and it's great. I learned a tremendous amount from systematic theology, an ordered way of, of tackling different topics. Who is God? Who is man? Um, you know, evil. What's the Holy Spirit? You know, ecclesiology, the study of the church, and, and so forth and so forth. Um, but I don't think scriptures, I don't think the scriptures are meant to be interpreted in that light in terms of having a bunch of presuppositional statements. I mean, because scripture is ultimately one story. All 66 books of this, of this Bible here tell one story. And there is a master and he's working his perfect plan. All right. And it's, it is perfect. All right. And, um, I mean, can you, for those of you that like to read, um, or especially uh, like the, the Lord of J.R. Tokens, the Lord of the Rings, can you imagine if, if, as you were reading that, it was just a bunch of presuppositional statements? Like, you know, hobbits, some hobbits are good, some hobbits are bad. Um, you know, there are some good wizards, there are some bad wizards. Um, you know, there are places of darkness and there are places of light. I mean, we would be bored to death if all we read were presuppositional statements, Right. But as we read the, the, we read the text and the characters come to life, we begin to understand them. We see their struggles. We see the, and we see that, that this plan is moving forward. And this is how we are to read our scriptures as this one big story, right? I mean, like in the movies, right, there's, there's three Lord, there's a trilogy, right? But ultimately, it's telling one story. And I tell you this because scripture is not disconnected. And you and I, we have this natural tendency to disconnect the scriptures, um, because when we don't see it in the light of the one story, it can lead to some bad interpretation. A lot of people today, a lot of Christians, and I, I was guilty of this as well, we read the scripture and we make it all about me. And it's like this picture, this next slide here, you know, it's, it's, this is kind of how we read our Bibles. And um, Brad, last week, preaching through Romans chapter 7, a few verses, uh, he gave a perfect example. Romans uh, chapter 7, verse 2 on the next slide, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. A lot of us will read that and we're like, the scriptures are talking about marriage and, and if my husband dies and I can get remarried. And it's like, no, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's using it as, a, as an illustration, all right, to talk about our relationship to the law, all right? And you and I, we can't understand, all right, the, just the depth of the God's law apart from the one story. And what I'm, what, uh, what I'm praying is that we could always keep that one story uh, central, and uh, like I said, Brad preached uh, an awesome message last week. And uh, personally, I'm not, uh, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. And, and I know Brad's not as well. I, I think we're, we're more along the line of, of three-point Calvinists, right? But um, one of the concepts that Brad unpacked last week, just it was awesome, was that concept of imputed righteousness. And that because of faith in Christ, right, the same righteousness that Jesus bears is shed on me. And I'm able to be righteous before God. And isn't that glorious? And when we, when we see imputed righteousness and we see it in light of the one story, oh, my goodness. It's, it's, like, it's like the picture that is just like outlined comes to life and there's color and it's vibrant. And my prayer is that we would begin uh, approaching it this way. Um, for example, in Sunday school, we, we, we teach our kids the framework of the Bible, right? There was creation and then there was fall and now there's mission, redemption, and it's going somewhere to where there's going to be a restoration or what's known as a consummation when Jesus ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. And what will help us is keeping the Bible in that framework. And what will help you, too, is this view of the gospel. A pastor had helped me understand this. Well, there's what's called the aerial view of the gospel, all right, and the ground view of the gospel. And we have to have both. 
Now, this aerial view of the gospel is like you're able to stand back. It's like the 30,000-foot level where you're able to see like the one story, God's, God's hand in, 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 all of, uh, in all of history. Right? You're able to see that, okay? And this is God's glorious cosmic plan of the gospel and how, it's just, how Jesus is central to that. And then you also have the ground view of the gospel, which is the implications of that, <clears throat> the day-to-day, the everyday. And one, one example from the scriptures would be the book of Ephesians. I love Ephesians. I know that every, like I said, every scripture fits in this, but Ephesians, all right, it, it, it's so easy. It's six chapters, right? You could literally take a knife and cut it in half, right? The first three chapters, it paints, it gives you that aerial view of the gospel. You know, beginning, Paul begins, like, you are predestined as the church. You are, you are chosen. You are sealed in the spirit. And, and your relation, you know, the Jew and the Gentile, united. And he unpacks that for three chapters. And then chapter four, he transitions to the, to the ground view of the gospel. What are the implications, right? Uh, in chapter four, therefore, I urge you, right, to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Here are the implications of the one story of the gospel in your life. Chapter five, how does that affect your marriage? How does that affect your relationship with your kids? And, so, and, and how does that re- re- reflect your relationship masters and slaves, right? Gospel implications, I tell you this because so often we just read the scriptures. We read Ephesians. We read chapter 5, and we just, it's all about marriage. And it is about marriage, all right? It's, it is central because Paul uses that as an illustration. But when we compare that to the big story and to the light of, of the whole context of scripture, wow, it's amazing. Um, I was able to attend the last men's breakfast, the last one of the season, and uh, the, the topic of the day was um, the Word of God, and each man had a different segment of that. And uh, one of the men, man, this, this, this is like music to my ears, he, he said, Christocentric uh, preaching or, or interpretation, which meant, you know what? All of this is talking about one man, Jesus Christ. And it's not that the goal is we're trying to take the New Testament Jesus and slap him on the Old Testament, all right? It's not like this felt pad of Old Testament scenery and we're like, okay, Jesus is here in the backdrop with a peace sign saying, hey, I'm here. It's, it's no, it's, it's that, and granted, there may be times when, when, you know, when Jesus is there, right? But it's, it's like, man, we see, we see God's redemptive plan and we see Christ all throughout the Old Testament. It's amazing. To get, I mean, Jesus himself, after he resurrected on the road to Emmaus, he encountered Cleopas and his companion in Luke chapter 24, 25 through 27. And uh, I'm going to be reading fast and a lot of content. So forgive me if, uh, uh, if, if you need some notes, I, I can give that to you. And he says here, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The New Testament canon wasn't available. Jesus was speaking of the Old Testament, that everything in the law and the prophets testified about him. The main characters weren't Moses, David, Abraham, Samuel. The main character was Jesus. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament, there's foreshadowing, right? Because one day there was going to come someone greater than Moses who was going to be the perfect intercessor for his people. One day, you know, there was going to, through, through Abram, was going to come the seed that was going to bring blessing to all the nations, to every single people group. One day, all right, there was going to be, there was a good king, David, but there was going to be a perfect king who would usher in a perfect reign. And when we see that in the light of the big story, it just blows our mind away. Another concept is, um, no, I'm sorry, here, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, Jesus Christ is the alpha and omega of the Bible. He is the constant theme 
of its sacred pages from first to last, they testify of him. The scriptures are the swaddling bands of the holy child Jesus. Unroll them and you find your Savior. The quintessence of the word of God is Christ. When we uncover that story, we begin to understand it. We see that God is indeed sovereign and that he is indeed in control. But yet, sometimes you and I have a hard time accepting that and believing that. We sometimes fall into that illusion that God is a stage director who's going around and putting on fires uncontrolled. No, when you see the scriptures and you see the one story, you see that God is in perfect control, executing a perfect plan. An example of this that I wanted to give was the Ark of the Covenant and the Day of Atonement, right? How this, how, how this fits into the big picture because it's covered in Leviticus chapter 16 and Hebrews 9. For example, if you attempt to even read the book of Hebrews, right, you have to understand Leviticus. You have to understand God's big scope and, and, and big plan and the purpose of the law and sacrifice. And, and when you do, like I said, it brings it to life. For example, within the Ark of the Covenant were, were three components, the first being the golden pot of manna, Exodus chapter 16. Manna from heaven, the, the bread from heaven that, that God had provided for the Israelites. All right? And these three images are going to paint this picture of, of, of our sinfulness. Because as this golden pot of manna was a reminder that God had provided for Israel, but Israel complained and rejected it. Then the second component was Aaron's budded staff. And uh, it, was, it was a reminder that Israel kept falling short, that they failed to submit to how God wanted things to be done, his rule, his leadership, as the Israelites rebelled against Aaron. They didn't want him to be the high priest. The, the last component being the two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. Right, this was God's right standard of living, the way, that he, he, the way that he wanted us to live. But Israel kept falling short of that. Right, and we know that once a year, the high priest would have to enter into the Holy of Holies and, and sprinkle blood onto the mercy seat. And you know what that did? When God looked down at the Ark of the Covenant, he didn't see, he didn't see like rebellion and sin. He saw the blood that covered it, and it made atonement to cover over. And then you go to Hebrews chapter 9. And you begin to understand Jesus is the fulfillment of that. That the blood of Jesus covers us once we place our trust in him. And, and God looks at us and that appeases his wrath. He doesn't see broken sin. Because Jesus was the perfect. He was, he was the bread from heaven, John chapter 6. He was God's perfect provision. Like, you know, how God intended Aaron's staff. He submitted perfectly to the will of God. So much so that Jesus could say, I only do what I see my father doing, and I've come to do my father's will. And lastly, the, the Ten Commandments. Jesus walked perfectly. He was sinless. You see that? When we, when we put that framework, right, when we put that against the backdrop of the scriptures, boom, it just, there's fireworks coming, coming alive. And what we see here, too, as we read the scriptures, is that God is most concerned about one thing. He's not, his number one concern isn't you or I. It's not whether we had a good day or a bad day. God's number one concern all throughout scripture is his own glory. And I don't have time to unpack the, glory, the concept of the glory of God, but that's his number one concern. It's not whether you and I choose to uh, drink alcohol or not whether we live upright lives or not. It's his own glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7 tells us that we were created for his glory. We know that scripture says that creation screams of God's glory. Isaiah 42, 8 tells us that his glory he will not give to another. Sometimes God has been accused of being self-centered and egotistical because of this fact. 
God being sovereign and in control angers some. For example, some of you have read some of Richard Dawkins' stuff, a world-renowned atheist. He wrote in his book called The God Delusion, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. But I ask you, who would you rather God have his life centered on? Richard Dawkins? You? Me? I fear what the world would look like if, if God was centered about me. And I pray that you would come to that same conclusion. There would be some chaos, wouldn't there? Man. But anyway, when we see the light... Of Scripture, in this light, right, we see that there is a trajectory, and we see that there is a purpose, his glory and his worship. And uh, I had the privilege of taking the Perspectives class, and the Cornerstone Mission Team took it. And what I love about the Perspectives course, I recommend any believer to take it, all right, is that it presents the world Christian movement in this light, in this one story, within a biblical theological framework. Um, for example, in, you know, in Genesis 3, we have the fall, right? And what you see in Genesis 3.15 is, is a theologian's, it's a fancy word, uh, Latin term, the proto-evangelium, which simply means first gospel. This was the preaching of the first gospel where, where, where the Lord was pronouncing judgment on the serpent, all right? And he was saying that there was going to come someone from the seed of Eve that you're going to wage war with, all right? And he's going to crush your head. Yeah, you're going to bruise his heel like a temporary, you know, like a temporary sting, but he's going to, he's going to, he's going to deliver that finishing blow. And that, was, that was a promise, guys. And then here in Genesis 12, so ever since Genesis 3, we see that mission redemption was in place, all right? God was in control, all right? Don't ever think that God's like, oh, man, what am I going to do? Like, you know, we've got to go to plan B now. No, 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 okay? This is God in control. Then we come to Genesis chapter 12, and we see, all right, we see how this is going to all occur. He says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, Abram, you're blessed to be a blessing, and through you there's going to come someone that is, you know, that is going to be a blessing to all the nations, every single people group, every tribe. This was to be continued through the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the making of disciples of every single people group. All right, it's a continuation. It's not something that God started that was new. No, it's part of his plan unfolding. And then in Matthew 24, 14, regardless of your theological bent, there is something of significance here that is of the utmost importance. Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's moving, guys, to an end. And it's involved in gospel proclamation to all peoples. And guys, we're at, a, we're at an interesting point in history, right? We have so many unreached people groups right now, but do you know that that number of people groups is decreasing? And something's going to happen. The end will come. And then we have this picture that, that Jesus gives us through John in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. 
Every people group is going to be represented from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You guys see two things there? In heaven, there's going to be worship. We're going to be worshiping the Lamb. In heaven, there's going to be a representative of every people group. There's going to be authentic community. Sin will be eradicated. So worship and community are central, are central things. Now, a convicting question that, that we tend to ask ourselves when we read this test when we read this text in Revelation is if you don't enjoy worshiping God now and if you don't enjoy community now, there's a good chance you're not going to enjoy heaven because those are two components that are going to be central to heaven because your life, you're going to be with Christ. There's going to be no more sin to deal with here. And we're going to be in perfect relation with, with people. All the stereotypes in our minds are going to be gone and, you know, our, and we're just going to be, it's going to be awesome. Well, anyway, this is the backdrop that we're going to move forward with. And I know that it was very long-winded. And uh, let me also tell you that I've been so blessed that uh, uh, we've been going through uh, the book of Romans. Um, we, uh, we attended in January of 2010 when, when Brad was, uh, was, was starting Romans. And uh, I, was, I was so excited. The first time I heard Brad preach, I said, that's, that's my preacher right there. And, um, you know, Romans, I mean, to, 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 to tackle the, the book of Romans, oh, my goodness, it... It, it rips you apart. I mean, it, it, you have to do your own soul searching and, uh, and, and to, to expound on the glories and riches that we have in Jesus. It, it's such a blessing. Um, and I know that all the word of God is holy, true, and powerful. Um, but Charles Haddon Spurgeon had a famous quote of the word of God. He says, uh, defend the Bible. Would you defend a lion? Loose him and let him go. And that's what I feel Romans does, right? I mean, even in my own life, when you read and you interpret Romans, does it not tackle self-justification, right? I mean, it really, Roman, you go through the first three chapters of Romans, and you're like, I am, woe is me, I am undone. I'm totally depraved, God. I've got nothing to offer you. And then as you begin to read Romans, you see this beautiful picture of a beautiful Savior who, in spite of my sinfulness, willingly gave himself up for me. And then in Romans, we get the ground view and the aerial view of the gospel. Right? We get that big picture, like big story, how, how all throughout history God was working and how everything was going to be manifested in Jesus Christ. And then we have, you know, chapter 12, we, we begin to have the implications of that, you know, of living your life as a living sacrifice. And we can understand John Newton, the famous hymn writer of Amazing Grace, toward the end of his life, this is what he said. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great savior and Christ, I'm a, I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And now we come to Ecclesiastes. And I love this book because like Romans, it likes to crush things. All right? And I need that. And I pray you would need that too. We need to be crushed because we are very prideful people. We like to stand our own righteousness. We like to... You know, we like to self-justify. 
And Romans crushes that. Ecclesiastes does the same thing. It tackles issues like materialism, secularism. It even talks about hedonism, the seeking of, of, of pleasure. Yeah, the, the, the writer goes and he examines everything. He looks at, okay, what does it mean to pursue um, a life of wisdom, a life of pleasure? Um, you know, what if, what if I did this? What, and, and he's like experimenting with everything. Ecclesiastes exposes idols in my own heart and exposes idols in my culture. But when reading Ecclesiastes at surface, at surface level, you kind of you kind of feel like the guy's just like you know kind of like this this depressing guy who wants to sap all the joy out of the room. You know, a lot of times we picture him to be like this this guy who's in a dark corner of the room. He's on a stool. He's got his head down. He's got a bottle of liquor, and he's just saying, "Vanity of vanities." And you just want to like put your arm around him and say, "Hey, man, it's going to be okay." Life's not that bad. But we have to remember that he is a teacher in the assembly. That's what Ecclesiastes means, one who teaches in the assembly. So he's a teacher, and he's going to teach us something, all right? And if he's a teacher, it simply means that class is in session. Sidney uh, Grudanus explains that Ecclesiastes, with all of its juxtapositions, is like a Rembrandt painting. This is what he says. He says, the book is like a Rembrandt painting where the dark background and figures draw one's eyes to the figures in the light. The teacher's dark background of vanity and death seek to draw the reader to the elements in the light. In joy, it is God's gift. Fear God, keep his commandments. The light is at the focal point of the teacher's message, but only in contrast to the darkness of life without God. I just want to challenge you today, brothers and sisters. You know, I made a commitment years ago that I didn't want to waste any more of my life. I spent over half my life chasing the things of this world and pleasing myself. And the fact, I believe that, that, that all that time was spent being an agent of the devil, not being an agent of Jesus Christ. And as preachers, and this is what I love about Brad as well, you're blessed because preachers that preach without compromise. It's not our goal to offend you, all right? But I know that when we encounter the word of God, it's like a mirror, right? It shows us who we are. It shows us how really... Like it shows us how, how dirty we are. It shows us really that, that there's nothing in life that we can cling to apart from Jesus' saving grace. And I want to challenge you today, and I pray that there would be some conviction, and I pray that that conviction, if you feel that, that that would prayerfully lead you to repentance and not in continual denial and rebellion. Now, the majority of you in here are over the age of 12. You've reached what's called the age of accountability. Scripture doesn't talk about it. Like, there's not a term, age of accountability, so we're not going to be legalistic. But we're going to say that there comes a point in everyone's life when we need to grow up. In the Jewish culture, there are, there are bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs when a young lady turns 12 and when a, and when a gentleman turns 13 because women mature faster than men, amen? We're learning, but that's the truth, right? Um, but we know that prior to the bat mitzvah and the bar mitzvahs, Right? The responsibility of their upbringing and their spiritual like, uh, adherence and obedience, the onus was all on the parents. Right? But after the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah, that ownership transferred. Now it's like, hey, kid, you're responsible. You've got to grow up, and you've got to take ownership of this faith. You've got to participate in, in the rituals and the sacrifices, and you're going to have a part in all this now. So we see here that there is indeed a time to grow up. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13.11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. 
Even though Paul was talking about spiritual gifts here in this passage, we get the gist. His point was that we are to mature in our thinking and in our ways and how we use our spiritual gifts. I don't know about you guys, but I want to grow. I don't want to be in the same place 10 years. And I pray that you have a heart to grow and to see Christ. But the problem is this. Many people, even people in this room, are going to continue on in their adolescence until who knows how long. In other words, you're going to willingly choose to remain in your childish ways, and life is going to go by so fast. It's never too early to start, and we're going to learn from this text in Ecclesiastes that even our youth, all right, it's temporary, it's fleeting. It's not going to last very long. One of my pet peeves, um, I, I worked in youth ministry for a number of years, all right, was when I heard parents when I heard parents say this, why do you challenge them so harshly? They have time. They'll learn when they get older. And honestly, that statement drives me crazy. When I hear that statement, I cringe. Like, I, I, get, sick to my, I get sick to my stomach when I hear that. Like I, like, I remember talking to a parent, all right, and I just, I just, I couldn't move. I just tensed up. They have time. They'll learn when they get older. This statement is making three statements, and only one of them is true. They have time. If there's anything that I've learned from studying the Word of God and trekking through Ecclesiastes, we don't have much time, guys. Vanity of vanities. Life is but a vapor and a mist. Here one second, gone the next. The next two statements, they'll learn when they get older. A simple point that our teacher is going to remind us today in the text is that the chances of you learning anything will depend on what you do today. So if you don't learn now, the chances of you learning when you get older is pretty slim. Hence the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. They get older, and this is the truth. You will get old one day, and that's if the Lord blesses you with a long life. But if not, you're going to die sooner. So the call to act is now. And I want to preach that word to you with the belief that God moves through his word. Amen. Ecclesiastes 11.7. Light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. The teacher starts off by telling us, right, that, that, that life is good and it's meant to be enjoyed. All right. Yet when you read Ecclesiastes, you understand that there's tons of metaphors and there's tons of allegory that is used. All right. And we have to unpack that. Right. But when it talks about light, it's comparing it to life. Like as, as light is sweet. All right. So is life. All right, and God wants you to enjoy that life. Verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Not only are we to enjoy life, but we're to rejoice in the days of life that our Creator has given us. Every day is a gift of God. We're to enjoy it thoroughly. We're not to carry around the mentality that, you know what, I'll enjoy it when the weekend comes. I'll enjoy life when, when, you know, when I go on a vacation with my family. Or I'll enjoy life in the future. Right? The call, uh, um, central message to all of Ecclesiastes is, brothers and sisters, enjoy the life God has given you right now, today. Seize it. The teacher also reminds us that the days of darkness will be many. All right, now, this is where the teacher gets kind of accused of like, man, like, you know, he, he builds us all up and then he pops our balloon, right? That's not what he's saying. I mean, he's saying it, it doesn't eliminate the fact that we're to enjoy our life. He's saying enjoy that. But in this text, the days of darkness does not refer to death. It refers to the suffering involved in getting old. That's, that's what he's talking about, of, of, of the days of darkness will be many. And all that comes is vanity. 
So it's like, since this is the case, there's going to be much suffering in getting old. Enjoy it now. Verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. The teacher reminds us again that we're to rejoice, but now we're commanded to rejoice in our youth. You are to let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. You're to walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. You're to enjoy life. You're to act upon your convictions. You're to follow your desires now without delay and without waiting. You want to pursue something? Pursue it. Do it is what he's telling us. But too often as Christians, we're taught that if it feels good, that we need to repent because of the fact that it felt good. God is not a cosmic killjoy, okay, people? Enjoying your life with God is a theme central to Ecclesiastes. Look at Psalm 1611. You make known to me. <clears throat> so David writes, sorry. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the psalm that we all know, 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, it's not to say that this is saying, you know what, God, if I love God, I'll get everything I want. I'll be rich. I'll get, you know, get this and that. Because that's not the case. That's called prosperity gospel, right? What it does mean is that when I enjoy God, when I love God, when I walk closely with God through Jesus Christ, God changes your desires. Matthew Henry explains it well. He says, we must make God our heart's delight and that we shall have our heart's desire. We must not only depend upon God, but solace ourselves in him. We must be well pleased that there is a God, that he is such a one as he has revealed himself to be, and that he is our God in covenant. We must delight ourselves in his beauty, bounty, and benignity. Our souls must rest to him and repose in him as their rest and their portion forever, being satisfied of his loving kindness. We must be satisfied with it and make that our exceeding joy. Many of us are lacking joy because we're pursuing the wrong things. She gives us wrong desires because we're delighting in the wrong things. That which you enjoy most is going to be that which causes your desires to exist. For example, if sexuality, you'll become perverted and your desires will be crooked. If money, you'll be greedy, idolatrous. Your your desires will be things rather than God. As we learn to love God, to be satisfied and delighted in him, he gives us passions and desires as well as profound convictions. St. Augustine penned the words, love God and do as you please. And I believe that's, that's a real great challenge for us as Christians, you know, setting our boundaries and then operating within complete freedom with them. I think that's where we really struggle. But God wants us to enjoy him. Delight in God first then do as you please, brothers and sisters. But we spend a lot of our days pursuing things without previously drawing near to God. We don't make sure that those are his desires for us. I mean, you, you talk about the will of God, thinking about this opportunity, that, taking this job or that, dating this person, that, marrying this person, moving here, moving there, doing this, doing that. And if you love God, enjoy God, delight in him, walk with him, he'll place his will in your heart so that your will and his will are the exact same thing. No more this or that, torn between this or that. Am I doing God's will or not? If you knew God, if you enjoyed God, If you knew what God intended and desired for you, you would pursue that and do it. Do it. Do it with the utmost conviction and enjoyment. But here's a warning, guys. All right? He peppers this now with a warning. We're not to use our youth 
to indulge in sin. We are to remember that for all these things, God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is one of the central things to the scriptures. If we were to take that out, we're going to miss a lot of the central message there. It's a sober reminder here as well that one day there will be judgment. Now, this fact that there's going to be a judgment of God is not to suppress your rejoicing in the life here now. Rather, this judgment, the fact that God's judgment is coming, needs to guide your convictions and your desires. That's what he's saying in Ecclesiastes. It's simply to underscore and redirect our enjoyment. He doesn't want us to, in our youth, to use this time period to, to, to indulge in the sinful nature because he knows that he's experimented, remember? He's looked under every rock and he's saying, vanity of vanities, guys. All it does is sorrow and pain. The Bible is clear. What you reap, you will sow. Set your rejoicing on the things of God and you will sow accordingly. Set your rejoicing on the things of the flesh. You're going to sow accordingly as well. I wanted to take a minute to challenge and pick on our men. And um, because so many men, both young and old, are not delighting in God. There are so many men who profess to be Christians, but yet their whole life is spent chasing the things of this world. And this is affecting everything, right? This is affecting families. And the church is a family of families, right? It affects the church as well. And the bottom line is, we do need men to step up. The church does need it. Now, I'm thankful for those of you here that are, that are men of God. If you're single, you're choosing to remain committed to the Lord. You're choosing to honor your sisters in Christ. You've chosen sexual uh, purity. You've cho- you're choosing to not make it your life's purpose to chase the things of this world. You're actively fighting sin in your life. You're also uh, fighting against self-righteousness. I mean, Brad did a great job, just that pendulum, right? You're, you're, not, you're not like licensed to sin, and, you know, but you're not a legalist as well. You're keeping the gospel at the center of your life, and, and it permeates and it affects every area of your life. It's not just, you know what, I'm a Christian on the weekend. Or, God, you got one day a week. If you're married, you're loving your wives as Christ loved and died for the church. You're being an example to the younger men. You're loving your families, and you're committed to raising them the Lord's way and not the world's way. And you're actively involved in the lives of others. Now, brothers and sisters, the hardest age group of people to get inside the church here are 18 to 34-year-old men. And if you fall into that category, you are defined statistics. Praise God. And we come, with that knowledge, right, we come and we talk about the fall and we talk about Adam and Eve. And we like to joke around. But as men, I think deep down inside, we really think it's Eve's fault. Man, Eve shouldn't have that fruit. It was her bad. And as much as, you know, like, as funny as that sounds, a lot of us really believe that, though. Man, if she didn't do that, we would be good today, man. We would still be naked in the Garden of Eden, like running around, you know, eating fruit. But we need to wake up because Scripture makes it so clear that it isn't Eve's fault. Guess who was there when she was tempted, Genesis tells us? Adam was there, and he failed. He didn't protect her. He did nothing. In Romans, Paul says that, you know what, all who are in Adam. He doesn't say all who are in Eve. So I tell you this because as men, I believe that we have to take ownership of this, all right? That's where it needs to begin. And I believe that a lot of our failures are a result of of men not stepping up. And I wanted to read this article to you because this, I think, paints a picture of, 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 of what it looks like when 
uh, when we're not delighting and desiring the right things. And statistics are proving this. It's from a book called Church Planner from, from a pastor by the name of Darren Patrick. And he says, we live in a world full of males who have prolonged their adolescence. They are neither boys nor men. They live suspended, as it were, between childhood and adulthood, between growing up and being grown-ups. Let's call this kind of male ban, a hybrid of both boy and man. Ban is juvenile because there has been an entire niche created for him to live in the lust of youth. The accompanying culture not only tolerates this behavior, but it encourages it and endorses it. Consider magazines like Maxim, movies like Wedding Crashers. This kind of male is everywhere, including the church and even, frighteningly, vocational ministry. Ban may be a frightening reality in the church, but he's the best thing that ever happened to the video game industry. Almost half, about 48% of American males between the ages of 18 to 34 play video games every day for almost three hours. The average video game buyer is 37 years old. In 2005, 95% of computer game buyers and 84% of console game buyers were over the age of 18. Halo 3 grossed over $300 million in the U.S. in its first week, and more than 1 million people played Halo 3 on Xbox Live in the first 20 hours. Astonishingly, 75% of American heads of households play computer and video games. It may be troubling to look at how Ben spends his money, but it's appalling to see how he relates to women. One need only to follow Ben to the club to see what he thinks of and wants from the opposite sex. Again, the stats tell the story. There are 9.7 million Americans living with an unmarried different sex partner and 1.2 million Americans living with the same sex partner. Every second, $3,075.64 is being spent on pornography. 28,258 internet users view pornography and 372 internet users type adult search terms into search engines. Every 39 minutes, a new pornographic video is created in our country here, in the United States. In the United States, 1.3 women are raped every minute. That results in 78 rapes each hour, 1,872 rapes each day, 56,160 rapes each month, and 683,280 rapes each year. One out of every three American women will be sexually assaulted in her lifetime. The United States has the high, world's highest rape rate of the countries that publish such statistics. It's four times higher than Germany, 13 times higher than England, and 20 times higher than Japan. Unfortunately, many young women today have given up trying to find Mr. Right. They're coming to the stark reality that they're probably going to have to settle for Mr. So-and-so. So Ban is good at selling himself as a man, but the reality is that he is just a man wannabe. Ban typically doesn't like absolute truth, but he proves its, its existence through his continual devolution into junior high behavior and its accompanying consequences. It's a transcultural reality that assuming the responsibilities of husband and father makes a boy into a man, but Ban doesn't like responsibility, so he extends his adolescence as long as humanly possible. And by delaying having a family, which is the right of many cultures, progress into manhood, Ban is able to set his focus squarely and supremely on himself. As Ban puts off adulthood, he also puts off marriage. Why bother with a wife and a mortgage when you can live in your parents' basement, play video games all day, participate in adult sports leagues at night, and bar hop every weekend? Life is good. A psychologist states that in 1970, 69% of 25-year-old and 85% of 30-year-old white men were married. In 2000, only 33% and 58% were, respectively. And the data suggests this trend is not slowing. I think this is one of the reasons why young men love watching mixed martial arts. They project themselves onto these superheroes, 
men who are everything they're not, incredibly disciplined, courageous risk-takers who have the genuine respect of their peers. It's as if watching real men in danger taps into the brain chemistry responsible for what we call masculinity. Curiously, the testosterone and adrenaline that encourages men to seek danger and risk are rarely tapped into for honorable purposes like lifelong marriage and parenting. Instead, Ben settles for virtual reality and virtual relationships. The wedding is easy, isn't it? 25 years of marriage is hard, right? Men and women, the command is to rejoice in the things of God, to enjoy them his way, not our way. And men, it's time to step up. I ask every one of you men this question, what are you delighting in? What are your desires? And at the end of the day, are you really satisfied? But on the flip side, let's take a positive example, men and women. All right, let's talk about marriage and sex. The Bible talks about marriage and sex. Praise God for that. It gives us some guidance. And when we talk about enjoyment, okay, men, God wants you to enjoy your wives thoroughly. I was joking around with um, one of our youth students one day. Um, she told me that I should learn to sing a song from Bruno Mars because the, uh, the lyrics were so poetic and romantic and it would, uh, it would be to my wife's heart delight. Um, but I looked at her and I said, have you ever heard of the book of Proverbs? Have you ever read Song of Songs? I said, Bruno Mars got nothing on Proverbs and Song of Songs. Married women, this is going to make you blush. And married men, let us rejoice because there's one time in Scripture that we're allowed to be intoxicated, even though the Hebrew is not referring to drunkenness. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. It says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. This is an example of right enjoyment of the gift of marriage. We are to thoroughly enjoy. We're to rejoice, to take great delight or pleasure. It's the same word that's used here in Ecclesiastes. This term to be intoxicated, always in her love. When our desires are for godly things, we're to enjoy them thoroughly, and we're to praise God for that. Amen? Desires aren't evil in of themselves. We just have to make sure we know what they're rooted in. And the fact that judgment is coming, like I said, shouldn't paralyze you in fear. It should simply curb your passions and desires in your youth? Are the things I'm chasing God honoring, are they coming from me delighting in him first? Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Guess what else is fleeting, brothers and sisters? Our youth. It's going to go just like that. And vexation in Hebrew means that which angers, grieves, or irritates. If we're to live joyfully, rejoice in the Lord, we have to remove vexation and anxieties from our life right now. In other words, it's not to say that we're to avoid these things and we're to avoid like, you know, bad circumstances. But what he's telling us is we have to learn to deal with them now. Don't say, you know what? I'll deal with that later. I got time. I got time to change. Learn to deal with these things now because there's going to come a time in your life. All right. in getting old, that vexation and pain are a normal part of your everyday life. And if you haven't learned to deal with them in your youth, it's going to carry over. Because the evil days are coming. Remember the, the, the days of darkness, that suffering involved in getting old. Verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth 
before the evil days come and the years draw near, but you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Here the call is to remember. Go throughout, go throughout your scripture someday, all right, and start to highlight the words remember and forget, right? Remembering is central to the scriptures. We are to, in our days of our youth, to remember our creator. Notice that he doesn't use the word God. The Hebrew, I mean, he uses the word creator. And what he's trying to do is, is he wants to point us to the fact that God is crea- creator. He created us. He owns us. He's telling us that true life and joy will come when we remember our creator. And that must begin in the days of our youth. And remember that life is brief. The call to follow Jesus Christ is now. And if you have children, you need to train them now. It's never too early to start teaching them. Uh, I think a great resource for parents in here is, a, is, a, is, a, is the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, Sally, Sally Lloyd-Jones, she's, she's, she works with Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And if you know anything about Tim Keller, Tim Keller is all about preaching the one story, all right? And, and this Jesus Storybook Bible tells all those stories. Like, so if it's talking about Moses, it's going to say, but guess what? There's going to be someone that, that came that was greater than Moses. It was pointing to Jesus. And read that. I, I've been reading that to my girls, and we read that every night. And um, uh, we read through a couple times, and like we came to Genesis again in and, and the fall. And my youngest daughter asked me, Daddy, why did, why did they eat the fruit? And it was just a perfect opportunity to teach about sin, rebellion, and whatnot. But do it now. Don't delay, okay? Just do it. Right? You don't have to be perfect. I mean, just do it. Just pick, up, just pick up the Bible and start doing it. Remember, all right? To remember, this is central. To remember your creator is more than to recall that there is a creator. More also than to just think about, you know, to to think about him from time to time. To remember your creator means to bring it to your mind daily what your creator has done for you and to act on this knowledge, all right? The concept here is is from like 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're talking about Hannah and Samuel. And in, in, in verse 19, it says that God remembered Hannah and he gave her Samuel. So what does that mean? It means that God was actively thinking of Hannah, and he, and he actively acted. And we're to do that as well. We're to remember, all right? And this carries us to the New Testament scriptures of Jesus. We're to remember the great sacrifice that Jesus paid and, and the life that he calls us to. We're to remember his commission. Remember to that, that there is an end in mind. And we're to act decisively. If there's sin in your life right now, you're to deal with it now. You're to cut it off now. There's no delay. There's something that you should be, there's a relationship that needs to be reconciled and restored. The time is now. It's not later. Remember your creator. And it's, we also have to remember our creator and the promises he gives us. I love, I love what Brad was talking about Romans. Just, I mean, Romans, you get there and you just realize like, man, on Christ the solid rock I stand, right? Because so often, guys, we're bipolar, Right? We're like, you know, we're, we're worshiping Jesus one minute. The next minute, we're like, you know, we're just off, we're off the wall. We're cursing people. We've got, like, this pent-up anger. And sometimes when we do that, right, we begin to question our salvation. As, as Brad has been preaching through Romans, one thing that is made clear to you, all right, is that there is no court in this universe, right, if you are saved in Jesus Christ, that you can be tried. You are free from the wrath of God because Jesus paid it all. And that's, you have to remember that, guys, because you have an accuser. That's what, that's what Satan means, accuser, right? It's like First John paints that picture of a courtroom, and you have the prosecutor attorney who's saying, saying, look at him, look at him, look at him fail again and again and again, time and time again. And you know what First John tells us? Jesus is our advocate. It's the, it's the court of law statement that he's the ultimate defense attorney that stands in our place and says, you know what, I got this. Innocent. We're no longer under the wrath of God, Amen. 
So we have to remember this in our youth because years will draw near, guys, when you're going to come to a point in your life where you have no delight in the pleasures and you're just going to be bah humbug about everything. There's a point, in other words, he's trying to tell us that it's going to be too late. You look at the life of Solomon. There was a gradual decline from here to here, right? He started off as as the second wisest person in the planet, right? Jesus was number one, always. And then he began to chase women. Read 1 Kings sometimes. And we know that some of these women were involved in idolatry and the practice of sacrificing children. And it's probably believed that Solomon himself practiced that as well. So we all ask, how did, we, how did he get there from here to there? And the simple answer is he forgot his creator. Simple and straightforward. How do we get from here to there? We forget our creator, guys. So the, the point is, if we fail to read our Bibles now, we fail to make our lives dedicated to prayer now, if we fail to confess sin and to repent now, chances are you're not going to do it when you get older. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. This is like metaphor, allegory for days of getting old. The teacher is now going to paint a depressing picture of the decline that takes place in old age. Beginning in verse 3, he likens the body of an old man to a decaying old house. Verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Keepers of the house were the watchmen. So what he's trying to picture us is what, de- what, what has defended you, man, in your hands. They've provided the, you know, they've given you the ability to work and to, and to uh, the ability to feed yourself and to protect yourself. But now they're failing to do that. They begin to tremble, right? And he's saying that as, you, as, as the body decays, all right, your, your, your body parts are going uh, are are to begin to tremble. Those of you that ever lifted weights, right, you attempt to lift more than you can. Your, your arms begin to shake, all right? Now, as you get older, this is going to be a normal part of your everyday life. And the strong men are bent. The strong men that have carried the old man's body are his legs. In old age, they can barely carry the weight anymore. They begin to bend. And the grinders cease because they are few. Grinders here represent the molars. So you can kiss chewing ribeye ribeye steaks goodbye. Can't chew the stuff anymore. You begin losing your teeth. You can't even eat kettle corn popcorn anymore. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Talking about the vision. Your vision is, is beginning to fade. You're going to have to squint more. As you drive, you're going to have to scoot your seat up and, you know, go, go above your steering wheel just to see street signs or to see if the light is green or red. Verse 4, and the doors on the street are shut. Your hearing begins to go. The doors are shutting. When the sound of the grinding is low, this old man, remember, has lost all his teeth. He can only chew soft things. There's no more sound when he eats. For those of you that have kids and at mealtime, right? You know how that works when they're chewing on food, right? At my house at dinner time, it sounds like every, every time we have dinner or a meal, it sounds like we're having a beatbox battle. Right? All the kids are chapping, yap, 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 chewing, chewing, because it's good times. But no more will it happen. And one rises at the sound of a bird, right? When you're young, right? You, and like, you're like, man, when I get old, I'm going to sleep, Right? I'm going to sleep, 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 sleep. But the, 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 the funny thing here is when you get old, you just wake up at any little sound. Got no job, nowhere to go. Can't even walk or drive anywhere, but a sound of a little Tweety bird wakes you up. You can't go back to sleep. That's what he's telling us. And he says, and all the daughters of song are brought low. The old man, he can't sing anymore. His voice is brought low. 
Verse 5, they are, all, they are afraid also of what is high. There will come a day when you're afraid of heights. You'll even be afraid to reach the top shelf for the peanut butter because just, you're getting old. So opposite of the way it used to be when you were a kid, right? The adventure, daring person to climb on the trees. There's going to come a point when you're afraid. I remember my son, when he was just barely, like, and he wasn't even walking, and he would he climbed this large, like, a, a slide in, the, in our backyard, and he flew down, and uh, he went flying, like, like, eight feet off and landed right on his stomach, and he just got back up and wanted to go right back up. That's not going to be the case for us anymore when we get old. We're going to be afraid of that. And it says here, and terrors are in the way. You will have terrors and you'll be more cautious. You won't venture out like you used to because if you walk outside in the Alaskan cold, you may slip on your driveway and bust the hip. The almond tree blossoms. The almond tree is one of the first to blossom in Palestine. And from a distance, all right, it looks like the back of a human head that's all just full of white. Saying you're going to get white hair. You're going to grow hair in places you never thought you could grow. You're getting old. The grasshopper drags itself along. It's pretty much the same. You're becoming an old fart now. (laughs) There used to be a point where your body was agile and nimble, all right? It's not so much anymore, right? For those of you that play sports, you completely understand, right? That maybe in your 18 to 22-year-old run, like, you know, you were, you were playing and you were, you, were, you, know, you were, like, fantastic. You're able to do, like, what you thought, okay, I want to I wanna spin baseline here and I'm going to make this layup. And you're able to do that. But as you get older, your body fails. Mentally, you know what you want to do. But physically, it's just unable to follow up. The, and desire fails. Theologians interpret this passage two ways. One, sexual desire. Or two, it carries the meaning of loss of appetite. Whatever the meaning, the things that you used to desire when you were young, your body stops. And it's not that you don't desire. It's just that your body can't do what it used to. Like, you you know, maybe you used to be able to go to, like, a twin dragon and eat, like, eight, um, you know, eight bowls of Mongolian barbecue. As you get older, you just can't do it. You can't keep up anymore. And it says here, because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. What he's saying is your life is heading into a certain direction you're going to die. We're all going to die is what he's saying. Verse 6, these, before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, he's given us three images that capture the end of life. And he compares life to a precious human lamp. The silver and gold signify that, 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 that it is precious. So he's talking about that. The silver cord refers to the cord that held the golden bowl, which held the lamp. And now the cord is snapped and the golden bowl smashes to the ground and the lamp is out. Life is coming to an end. Second thing, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. This picture involves a cistern or a container of water giving, uh, container giving life-giving water. It's now shattered, broken. Lastly, when the wheel broken at the cistern, people would turn the wheel at the cistern to get water, but now it's broken. Life is fading. It's coming to an end. Do you notice? Do you notice a theme in these verses here now, the three images? Broken, broken, broken. Life is broken and beyond repair. Death is final and irreversible. Verse 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. In Genesis 2, 7, it states, And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Here is now the reversal of what happened at creation. We return to the dust. Our spirits uh, leave our body and return to God, and that day will come for us all. This is a sobering reality, death. But we need to live with that in mind. The English pastor and poet John Donne, he bought a coffin and he placed it in his bedroom. And occasionally he would sleep in it. 
as a reminder of his mortality and the life of sin that he had renounced. I know it's a little morbid. I'm not telling us to go by a coffin, but there's a point. Do we live with the end in mind? See, the problem is that many of us, we think we're going to live forever. We think this phase of our life is going to last for so long. And the writer of Ecclesiastes saying, no, it's not. It's going to come and go. I was reminded of this recently when I was in Los Angeles in October. There was the Seal Beach shooting. And it was the worst shooting in the history of Orange County. In Orange County, it was an upscale place, a salon, where an angry husband had come in and just started gunning down the place and killed eight people. But, I mean, it's like that. Every day we go through life and we think, hey, we're just going to go to the salon. We're just going to live our life. We're going to do our things. And then, boom, it just ends. It is short, guys. The teacher has painted this picture that life is temporary. The human body is deteriorating. We are moving into a direction. Now, the question I have for all of us here is, how are you doing remembering? Verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. The teacher closes with this reality. Life is short. It's but a vapor. It's fleeting. It refers both to the duration, here one minute, gone the next, and it refers to the substance that there's nothing to grab onto. He's looked down every rock. You know what? He's looked down the life of pleasure, like the pursuit of wisdom, wealth, happiness, all vanity of vanities. And the theme is that life apart from God, anything that which you and I would pursue apart from God and under his control is vanity of vanities. A thorough investigation has been done, and he comes to this conclusion. And I want to just wrap it up here. And I pray that we can ask ourselves these hard questions. Questions like, how has your life been the past few months? If you claim to be a Christ follower, how have you been living your life? As we painted that, that picture of the one story, have you been asking, God, how can I be involved in your story? Or have you been asking, God, how can you fit into my life? Two totally different things. And so often as Christians, we're trying to see how God can fit into our lives instead of saying, God, I want to be part of your story and your redemptive plan and being part of bringing the gospel to all peoples, no matter where I'm at. Have you been remembering your creator? Have you been engaging the world you live in as a Christ follower? Are you on mission? Are you making disciples? That call to make disciples is for all of us. It's not just for pastors and elders and deacons. That call for the Great Commission is for everyone who would claim to be a disciple of Jesus. Are you doing that in your workplace, in your schools, wherever you're, wherever you're at? And these are hard questions because if we fail to ask them now, there's going to come a point in our life where our hearts are just so hardened. It's almost impossible to change. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said, life can only be understood backwards but it must be lived forward. Hence, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Guys, we have the end in mind. We have the full story right here. Now, the question now is, is this, are you prioritizing your life around the one story? If I could have the uh, worship team come on up. We know that our teacher here in Ecclesiastes had a limited view of eternity. He thought that the death, that death was end. He didn't know of life after the grave. But as believers in the new covenant, we do know that our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ, said about life after death. We know that he conquered death and that through him there is life beyond death. And because of that, that, we should, that, should, that should curb our passions and desires. And we know that as the, as the teacher of Ecclesiastes had told us to remember we know that Jesus told us to remember as well, amen, on the night that he was betrayed. 
The night before his death, he took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, I ask you that question. How are you doing remembering? Jesus also said that that he was going to be with the disciples and with us at the Great Commission to the end of the age. Are you remembering that when you go through dark times in your life, when you feel like you're alone, are you remembering that Jesus is always there? There's always a purpose and reason for everything. And the call right now is to act today. Do not delay. Like I said, if there's sin in your life that you need to deal with today, do it now. If there's a relationship that you have is broken, do it now. Reconcile today. If you need to ask your kids for forgiveness for the way you've been acting, do it right after the service. If there's something, if this is anything, do it today. Remember and act decisively. If you haven't been on mission, and I love, I love, the, I love the purpose here, to save the lost, to grow the found, and empowered. We're to be involved in all of those facets. And if you haven't been, repent and return. Get involved. Let's pray. Father God, we want to always make sure that we're resting in the final and perfect work of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you're all about your glory. Because, God, you are worthy of that. You are worthy of all of our worship. And forgive us, God, because, Lord, we don't give you the worship you deserve. We fail to remember. We're so consumed with our own lives and and, and our own things. And, God, I just pray, God, that you you would bring, you would revive hearts, God, in our city, in our state, in our world. That the gospel would continually move forward that the message of the cross would continually move forward in our city, in our homes. God, I pray, Lord, that if there's sin to be dealt with here today, God, I pray that there would no longer be a remaining in guilt, but instead there would be a perfect rest in what Jesus has done, and there would be an empowerment of the Spirit to move forward and to see victory. God, I pray I pray that right now over, over, over this church body, God. I pray that people would begin experiencing victory over sin, that they would see strongholds broken. They would see chains loosened. And they would see the Son of God lifted high in their life. Lord Jesus, you are the trailblazer. You are the, the author and perfecter of our faith. You call us to follow in that. And we simply just need to walk in that freedom and forgiveness. And God, I pray we would do that. I pray for hearts of genuine repentance. I pray that hearts would be turned to you. I pray that men would begin just stepping up. They would begin taking ownership, God. And I pray for restoration and healing as well, God. Thank you for your grace. And God, we want to remember you always. In your son's holy and perfect name we pray. Amen. Will you please stand with us? We're going to sing a couple.